Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavatu arahatu asma sambuddhasa Mudandamang sangam namasami so I wanted to start this talk with talking about the blessings of practice and the blessings of monastic life. And, um, you know, on the ray here, obviously, it's a little bit um, nerve-wracking when we realize that we're going to be late. And, you know, and Amber would say, it's a disaster, you know. So we worked out that we're in the wrong town and that we actually not quite sure how long it's going to take to get to the right town. And I said, well, it's actually not a disaster, you know. No one's hurt. There's no tragic thing that's happening it's inconvenient and it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's not a disaster. And so, you know, one of the values of practice and, you know, one of the things that I found really pertinent in being able to spend 20 years in a monastery and 10 years before that as a lay practitioner is, is that it helps bring into perspective what's actually happening. And so, you know, it's an emotionally activating situation when one has a teaching engagement and one set up months in advance and I know that there's a whole group of people waiting here and 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 one can't get there on time uh, through actually no fault of one's own you know but so the, that space of navigating well how do we navigate from where we are to where we need to get to not only geographically, but the internal territory of what's arising as we're doing that. And so the, 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 the emotions are saying this is really a bad thing and that you've got to really rush and panic and do all of that. But the practice says, well, wait a minute, you know, what's actually happening in this context and where do we need to, where do we need to soften and relax? And we can't go faster than we can go and we can only pick up the next piece of what we can figure out and we can move with that. And so, you know, the, one of the, the blessings that I've experienced of being able to live in the monastery has been a profound appreciation of being able to relax in the unknown. So for many years, there's been, um, there's the practice, there's the precepts, there's the meeting what is arising and the way that we're relating to it, and lots of not knowing, you know, lots of not knowing, not knowing how things are going to turn out and how it's going to, what the results are going to be or where the support's going to come from, and having to trust that if one stays present in the present moment, and deconstructs the reactivity around it, that from that, the next moment will emerge about the, what the right decision will be. And as an, as an alms mendicant, where my life is dependent on, on requisites being offered, and, you know, as a, as a nun, that, that means, you know, the daily food is also required to be offered, then there's a kind of the way that the normal mechanisms of the mind operate around wanting to be in control and wanting to have one's basic needs met and be secure. And yet the lifestyle forces a continual relinquishing of an external form of security and contacting the emotional reactivity that's arising and deconstructing that 
in order to come back into the present moment and relax there. And that is part of the lifestyle. The lifestyle was set up in order to potentize the practice and potentize the understanding of where real freedom rests. So for most of us, most of our lives, we really have this kind of deep-seated belief that if we get what we want, we get rid of what we don't want. That's where happiness is. And that just kind of pervades our life and our decisions and our choices and our values and is reinforced in the culture that we're around. And the monastic life turns it on its head and puts a fire underneath it and says, look, you know, is that actually the case? Because, you know, our basically our hands are tied behind our backs and our you're not allowed to say unless people ask. And so the, the situation is turned on its head in terms of being able to provide for one's own basic needs and get rid of the stuff that one feels uncomfortable about because the normal mechanisms for doing that are not usually within our control. So the Buddha didn't set this up in order to torture people. He set this up in order to support people in their practice. And you know, the basic requisites that need to be provided by the lay community create an opportunity not only to see the interdependent relationship of our lives, like every single day my life is dependent on people in order for me to survive, but also to continue to focus my attention back here where the sense is, where is the world being created from, you know? And certainly over the last 20 years, there have been some really fascinating predicaments that have arisen, you know, and I remember in one particular instance, I had decided to go on a pilgrimage to India and to Thailand and then return to Australia and then come back through North America. And the person who was traveling with me was not going to be able to stay with me the whole trip. And so she was leaving and going back to Thailand, and I was going to spend a few more weeks in India, and then I was going to meet her up in Thailand. And I was a nervous wreck because, you know, without being able to navigate the basic stuff around food and shelter and travel, I didn't know how it was going to work, even though I was going to a place that I had some sense they had some capacity to make provisions for people who were uh, monastics or living on alms. And it was, it was really fascinating to me because, you know, what I saw was happening in my mind was these phenomenal manipulative strategies of how can I get what I want without um, asking for what I want. And this whole thing was going on in my head, and it was really, I was quite worked up. And I, and I remember saying, well, actually, you know, this is not what I ordained for. I didn't ordain in order to manipulate you know, I ordained in order to see clearly and in order to let go. And the potency of the mind states I was experiencing was so obviously suffering, you know, that I thought, I've got to let this go. And so even though I was letting it go without having a clarity about how it was going to resolve, I knew I had to let it go. So the situation was still the same. She was leaving, I was going. I didn't have anybody there to look after me, and yet I knew that the old thing of trying to manipulate in order to get what I want was not the path I could take. So instead of going into doubt and worry and concern and strategies to control and to manipulate, I thought, 
I'll just go into stillness. I'll just drop into stillness and go into non-thought, not to think about it. So, you know, the feelings would arise, and rather than following that, there would be the deliberate intention to go into stillness rather than to absorb into the contents of my mind. And as I was doing that, unbeknownst to me, there was another person who was simultaneously changing her plans in order to support me to get to where I needed to go to set me up so that I would be well looked after, well supported, and well taken care of. So she changed her plans and spent three days with me to take me to where I needed to go, and then everything was all set up. But the thing is, which is so hilarious, is, is that it, we don't learn very quick, or at least speaking for myself, I don't learn very quickly. You know? And so it was like I just had this kind of lesson kind of pounded into me in like a very dramatic way. And then somebody came to me. So this was a Hindu place. They don't know about Buddhists, and they don't know about our rules, and they don't know about anything. And somebody came to me and said, is there anything you need? And I was, I was said, yes, I need some fruit. I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't know where, I don't know where this came from. It comes from fear, you know. It was like if I, if I didn't have fruit, something, I don't know, something terrible was going to happen. So they brought me a papaya and the bananas and the guavas and some, I don't know what else. And I had this whole pile of fruit. And then I thought, you know, I'm doing it again. You know, I just went through this. And I've done it again. It's like, I can't relax and trust every day. It's going to be okay. I'm trying to stockpile something that makes it so that I don't have to navigate this anxiety of not knowing. So I thought, this is ridiculous. Stop. Enough. You know? So I gave all the food away. And then from that point on till the time I left, every time I turned the corner, there were people giving me fruit. And I <laughs> And it's like, well, that's exactly what happens, you know? It's like, for me, that's what happens to me. When I do the internal work and meet the stuff and begin to start releasing the pattern, the universe reorganizes itself and just makes a laugh, you know? It just has a giggle about the ridiculousness of the situation and the fact that, in my case, my basic needs have been met, you know, that I have had enough food and shelter and robes and medicine to take care. So for me, one of the potencies of the monastic life is, is that it, 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 it has your nose at the grindstone relentlessly on this point until the system begins to restructure itself and learns to relax and trust in the potency of letting go. Not being in control, trusting the uncertainty, and trusting that that is really the powerful place from which all good things emerge. You know. So I must admit, I was a little bit tense when we were driving over here. And then I realized, well... You know, the tension doesn't help us get there any faster. You know, it doesn't make anybody else feel better. You know, what happens if I just relax into this? All right, so we're, we're in a little bit of a pickle, but we've figured out the pickle and we're getting ourselves the right way. You know, can I just soften into the moment? You know, can I just relax? 
And, you know, my personal experiences is that because this is such a, like a central part of our life and so much a reflection that has to be navigated daily, then it encourages this way of reflecting. And this level of reflecting encourages that level of trust. And for me, that level of trust has been very uh, beneficial. So I feel a tremendous blessing in having the opportunity to live as a nun, and I recognize in this life it's rare. I mean, how many nuns do you know? You know, and everywhere I go, I see people, and they said, "Oh, they didn't know there were Buddhist nuns." You know, it's like you know they didn't even knew that they existed. You know. And so it's like, well, yeah, this is an incredibly rare opportunity to live this life where that level of focus is actually the point of our life. That's what we're doing this for, is to really get it, that the place of freedom is here. It's not out there. And I was surprised, because as a lay practitioner, I really thought I had had a well-put-together practice. I was very committed, you know. I thought it was cool, you know. And... It really was uh, a surprise to me to realize the level to which I had been deluding myself and the ways in which the opportunities to get what I want, get rid of what I didn't want, were unnoticed. It's like I didn't actually even see that that's what I was doing because it was so much part of normal patterning that it didn't even register as, as, as what was happening until the container got more focused and refined and then I was able to see well actually there's a few more room for improvement (laughs) so for me you know the life has been a blessing and the blessing is the opportunity to practice and the blessing is is the opportunity to live with other people who are committed to practice and to be supported in keeping precepts and to be supported in a way where you know, the livelihood or one's requisites are being offered and it's not a kind of, doesn't take 10 hours a day just to sustain that, you know, where, you know, our energy is, is, is more organized around contemplation and supporting the community to support everybody's needs around that. So the blessing, I mean, I could spend weeks, I could spend months, I could spend a really long time talking about the blessings of what happens in a monastic life and the value of all of that. And it's important to get a sense of that because as not, I mean, as Western people in this world, especially in the States, you know, there are not that many monastics. You know, so the normal model is, is, is what you're doing. You know, a lay, a lay community that meets together, that supports each other in the practice, that goes on retreats to IMS or to other places. And it's not that common that you have contact with monastics or even have a sense of not only the blessing of the life, but the blessing of being involved in supporting it. And so, you know, on this trip on the East Coast, I had a DVD that was about a ceremony that took place in Chithurst, and I've been showing it in a number of places. And part of the reason why is because, you know, as good as imaginations you have, you don't get the feeling for what a monastic community feels like or the places that we lived unless you kind of see pictures and other people and everybody else doing that. But what there you can't even get in a picture is the quality or the of the field. It's like I don't know how to describe the field of blessings. But one of the things that a monastic community can create 
is a field of blessings that nourishes people on a very variety of levels. You know? So a field of blessings is something you have some kind of access to and it nourishes you. And the, the Vipassana scene is built around meditation. Well, a monastic life is built around many things and meditation is one. And so there's a community, there's devotion, there's celebration, there's light, there's frivolity and you know, levity, there's joy, there's work, there's ceremony. Um, there's a many, many, many different ways that people can plug in. And because of that, then it doesn't require that people only access it through meditation. So there's lots of people that come to the monastery that just simply don't meditate. That's not what they do. And they're absolutely welcome. And there's other people who come to the monastery who have no sense of themselves as being Buddhist. But they like the peacefulness of the place, or they like to help and cook, or they come and they help in the office. And through doing that, they have a feeling of joy or a feeling of connection to the community. You know, there's another monastery that had an extensive library and people would come and have access to this. You know. And so the, the field that a monastic community creates is something that creates blessings and those blessings are even extend beyond the physical location of the place itself. And it was hard for me to really get that until I was starting to travel and teach more when I was in England and I got, a, I got a sense, you know, people in England, you know, three hours is an enormous distance, you know, so they wouldn't drive that far very regularly. And so people who lived in Wales that was more than three hours or six hours or eight hours away, you know, they wouldn't come maybe more than once a year. But they said just knowing that the place is there, that people are practicing there, that people are gathering there, it gave them strength in their daily practice. And so there's a way in which the field then spreads out past the physical location of the monastery itself and touches people who are involved with it. And that's really hard to convey unless you actually experience it, you know? And so, you know, there's a a wonderful richness that comes with people coming together in the way that you are. And yet there's also a richness that comes with being able to participate in a monastic culture that is supportive of everybody and you know it's hard it's hard to give a feeling of that without actually tasting it or knowing it or getting a sense of what that might mean and having lived in it I could see the way that that would operate and so it was just it was fascinating to me to see that you know tradesmen coming who were contracted to work on buildings you know They'd come and they'd say, wow, you know, I don't know what it is about this place, but I can feel it, you know. And there were some fellows, when they were building the temple at Amravati, they were hilarious because they said, I don't know what it is about this place, but I ain't cursing, and I'm zipping my zip up before I come out of the john. You know, and they were like, you know, they just poured their heart into their place and also to being able to help in whatever way they could. So it's, it's lovely. Anyway, the blessings, they're manifold and rich. And, uh, 
And so I also wanted to talk this evening about some of the challenges that we've experienced as a community of sisters and how we've navigated that. Because, you know, this tradition, it comes from Northeast Thailand, and Thailand has its own cultural values, and the Buddhist tradition comes from, you know, something that's 2,550-something years old. And, you know, even in India today, you can see the relationship between the men and the women, and it's changing. But even in contemporary India today, women don't really have a place independent from their families or from men. You know, so one can imagine, you know, what was like 2,500 years ago. You know, so the whole idea of feminism has been something that is contemporary, where women have a right to exist. You know, our voices are worthy of being listened to and respected. We have a vote. You know, Switzerland. It was only 1970 where the women got the vote. You know, so some of this internationally is actually very contemporary stuff. You know. So in India uh, and in Thailand, you know, it was just, it's just natural that the nuns were invisible and not part of the monastery situation. They didn't have like a, an administrative role and they had their own communities, but they, there was a huge discrepancy between the monks and the nuns. And, you know, when the sisters first were interested in coming to be practitioners, we didn't have any elder sisters it was the first sisters that they had to figure it all out on their own and so it was natural that they would look to the monks as teachers and examples and as, as a way to get a sense of how to live the life and the monks knew how to live as monks they didn't know how to live as nuns you know so they would share what they knew and the nuns they took it on board and then after many years began to feel like well actually that's the way the monks do it but maybe the nuns need to find a slightly different way you know, so mm, some of the monks felt very comfortable with a hierarchical order, and the nuns felt more comfortable in a collaborative order or a kind of a consensual-based order where there was input rather than just the top-down kind of thing. And so after a long process of learning to try and trust ourselves, we began to see that, that our process had some differences in it. We needed to trust that and honor that and find a way that worked for us. And the battles that needed to be fought in order to get that ground were, were, were frequent, you know, because we didn't have any precedence. We were forging new ground. And so in every way, we had to kind of negotiate the territory, you know. And so, you know, the Thai system is based on, you know, the nuns actually don't have really any prominent role. It's the monks that do. And so every little ounce of ground had to be uh, fought for. You know, and some of the battles were long and difficult. You know. And the other thing that happens in a group of people who are like a subgroup in a larger group is, is that you've got the kind of um, dynamic of the tensions of that subgroup are played out on each other. Because... We were dependent on the larger group for our existence, and yet we didn't have the cohesiveness or the coherence to recognize the dilemma that we were in and, to, and, to, to, and be able to handle it. So it was quite common that what would happen is, is, is that the, the frustrations and tensions that we had being in this complicated situation would then get channeled to each other. And any subgroup that's in a larger group 
that either they are not seen or recognized or valued has the same dilemma that happens. And it's classic. It's across continents. It's across cultures. It's across everybody. It's a classic. And so for many, many years, the sisters navigated a lot of antipathy towards each other where we would oscillate between consolidation and fracturing, consolidation and fracturing, consolidation and fracturing, as we were navigating both the dilemma of having the phenomenal privilege of being nuns, which we all knew and recognized, having access to liberating teachings, which we all loved and valued and wanted to ascribe to, and living in a cultural context that required of us um, a dispossession of our own insight and wisdom in deference to a, a structure that was not familiar to us. And so because of the perseverance, the intelligence, the dedication, and the recognition of the suffering, after a period of 20 years that the sisters had been together as a group, they began to start looking at this dynamic that we were in as a dynamic itself and start picking it up and trying to figure out what is going on here. And of course, that brought us into contact with our own personal work and the kind of things that we each were bringing to it ourselves. And then after many years of doing that work, we began to see what was actually happening in the collective. How? In this situation, we were up against something that we didn't have the ability to change, and yet it was moving against our intuition and instincts about how things needed to be. And as a result of being in that position, it had certain kinds of pressures on us. So from 20 years to 30 years of the community, the sisters got more ground and more coherence and more um, confidence and began to uh, a little bit make more inroads in talking about this dilemma. And uh, and then a tipping point came when we got sufficiently confident to be able to hold the ground quite with a lot of equanimity about the dilemma we were speaking in a community that was congruent. Because up until that point, the community had not been congruent. And so as long as the community was not congruent, then it didn't seem as if what we were articulating posed much threat or risk. Once the sisters became congruent, then it tipped. And once it tipped, then the reaction was reactionary. And rather than the monks being delighted and impressed with our confidence and our intelligence and our capacity to articulate this a dilemma and stay in empathetic resonance, they were not. <laughs> So I was very much part of all of that in the sense that I was supposed to be part of the Saranaloka project, which was the branch monastery that was heading to California because we had gotten to concrete. We'd seen that it's not shifting in England, there's no movement, there's no discussion, and there's no room for any improvement. So let's see if we can change the territory by shipping off to California and allow things to move there. But I had the insight or intuition that what we were up against was rather on the largest side <laughs> and that if we didn't actually do this with utmost integrity, we were going to be cooked. So, you know, for me it was really clear that 
we were above board about what our intentions were. And for me, my intention was, is I was clear. I had, known, I had known by that point that this stuff is actually lethal. It's not, not only not okay, it's, it's actually lethal. It, it actually is quite destructive to people's spiritual processes. And it absolutely categorically has got to shift. All right? I knew. What I didn't know is how to navigate that. So I thought, well, all right, if we're going to go to California and try and hold open this conversation, then the, what we have to do is let them know before we leave that that's our intention. And so without actually being clear about specific points, but just general topics that we are wanting to stay open around the conversation, we put together what was called a statement of intention. And the sisters, that the four of us who were supposed to be part of that project, we spent, I don't know, 40 or 50 hours on it. We made, I don't know, 30 different versions of it. We got the entire sisters' community to ratify it and brought it forward to the venerable ones, who at that point started shouting. Can I ask one question? You're in England now? I mean, this this is happening in This is England. See, I imagined it in Thailand. No, no, no. Thai tradition in England. Yes, so this is Amravati and Chithurst Buddhist Monastery, where there's been a community of nuns that have been going on for 30 years. See, I imagine that happening in Thailand. No, no, we're on we're on Western soil. Not far from London, you know. Wow. Yeah, Western soil with university-educated monks in Western universities. And they're Thai, or they're they're like Brits, or they're all Westerners. Okay. All of them are Westerners, and many of them are university-educated in universities in the U.S. and North America, including Berkeley. Okay? Yeah? Yeah? With the program? (laughs) So this statement of intention was delivered to the venerable sirs, and which point they started shouting. And the shouting was very clear. The tradition is patriarchy and is hierarchy. The Vinaya cannot change. The tradition will not change. And if you don't like it, leave. End of conversation. So there were a number of other things that happened and, you know, then it started getting a little bit more heated and there was threats and intimidation and aggression and I said, no, I am not participating in stuff where I'm told that I have to participate when I'm told without any due process, with intimidation, with aggression and all of this stuff. I said, no, this is, I'm not doing that. And so I refused to participate in a ceremony that I was told that I must and that was the condition upon which some of the venerable ones came unglued and then I realized you know there's no conversation there's no discussion there's no interest in the integrity that this is coming from and there's no interest in the place where actually this feels to be harmful that's not what's happening here What's happening is, is is threats and intimidation and punishment for doing what felt like was the most honorable thing that I needed to do. So I said, all right, it's just finished. I can't be part of something that is no longer congruent with the values that I was signing up for. It's different now. 
and it's not something I want to support. So at that point, I said, I'm leaving. And that's when I decided to formally leave the tradition and then to come to the States and to see about uh, another, allowing something else to emerge. And then, of course, you know, when you've been involved in a community for 20 years, it's, it's it, you know, it's, it's hard to convey what kind of a transition that is, you know. It's like not, it's, it, it's, it's just, it's a very significant process. Meanwhile, the venerable sirs decided that it wasn't enough just to ask the sisters or tell the sisters that this is the way the tradition was. Then they said that they, they needed to insist that the sisters agree that this is actually the deal. So they came up with this five-point agreement and then told the sisters that if they don't sign it, there will be no more further ordinations and they will not be welcome to stay in the monastery. They were asked not to speak about it publicly, and there was no um, deliberation about it. And the elders' council, which was normally a a monk and nun council, a legal body that was designed to make decisions about the monastery, for reasons which never were explained to me, became a monk's elders' council that was imposing this on the sisters. So you have... All of a sudden, some very um, difficult things that are happening. And so I had left, and meanwhile are trying to figure out, well, you know, my own process, and then figure out what's needed, and then try and and create the context where if some of the other sisters wanted to join me, they'd feel welcome. So. Um, what happened was, is that in June of this year, I heard that four more sisters were leaving. They were either disrobing or leaving the community. Now it's at eight, you know. And so the community, which had built itself over a period of 30 years, is in the process of being decimated. And that's where we're at, you know. So I... At, when I got clear that it wasn't possible to negotiate any longer within the system, then I gave up trying to stay, have the monks understand what I was talking about and try and support me in it because it, it was, we didn't have a common language or a common ground. But what I haven't given up on the power of the practice and what I haven't given up is the power of monasticism and what I haven't given up is on the potency of what it is to live this life. But what I see is really needed is an ability to bring the potency of the teachings, which are in fact liberating, and allow them to find forms that are not requiring us to compromise our intelligence or integrity in order to participate in them. And no matter what the cultural context was that gave rise to this happening, in terms of whether it was India or whether it was references to certain things of the Vinaya or it was because of the identity of the Thai forest tradition in Thailand. What is clear to me is, is that this stuff has got to change because it's harmful. And the first precept is not to harm, you know? So I cannot in any clear conscious way participate or condone or go along with stuff which I know it's not a question of having an opinion about 
that I know is harmful. So it was on the basis of that where I said, all right, what do I have to lose? You know? That ain't an option any longer. There isn't anything else that I know of where they actually navigated this stuff in a skillful way where this material has adequately been attended to. So I'll step out into the unknown and see what happens. And so the last year and a half has been that. And, you know, one of the things which is hard to convey is is, is that the irony is, is that without the power of the practice that I have received in the monastery, I wouldn't have had the faith to stand up to my convictions and risk everything that I knew and walk out in absolute uncertainty as to what was going to unfold. But it's the power of the practice and the potency of the monastery that has given me the confidence to trust that if you stand on integrity, you walk with compassion, you find your steps with wisdom, then that is what you need to trust. And from that, the right things will emerge. So, there are enormous blessings in the life. There are challenges that we've had to, fa- to face. And I see very strongly that what is needed is a new model of monasticism that not only navigates these territories which have been taboo in terms of prejudice and discrimination and issues around gender and power with regard to the male and the female monastics, but what I also see is, is that we need to start look at some of these other things which haven't been addressed either, which is, is that you know the monastery is built on the premise that the monastics are the sole holders of spiritual authority. And so in a monastery situation, as much blessings as there are, the monastics are the one that make the spiritual choices and decisions and leadership and guidance instruction. And the lay community supports with administration and organization and requisites and fundraising and helping build buildings. And the lay community is not part of the spiritual leadership. And that needs to be renegotiated. Because in this culture, it is not helpful to have that division so absolute where you have people who are senior teachers and senior meditation practitioners have no voice in the spiritual unfolding of a fourfold assembly that includes lay people as part of the practice. So what I see as being needed is an, a collaborative envisioning of a new model where the essence of the teachings and some of the core principles of the structures are kept and some of the relationships and power structures are renegotiated. And in the meantime, what I'm doing is creating a training monastery for nuns so that anybody who wants to come would be welcome. And at the moment, there's a woman who's there who's interested in being a nun, and we're in the process of sewing her robes. So in a nutshell... That's what I'm up to. (laughs) 
At the moment, we're based in Colorado, and it's a tiny little place that's just unfolding in a very beautiful way. The, um, the landlord of the place that I am in is Christian, but of the old-fashioned kind of Christian that actually really enjoys helping people. <laughs> and he and his wife have been bending over backwards to make that place a little temple that I can stay for a few years. So he's renovating the garage to turn it into a standalone temple. He wants to build a separate building that will accommodate three more people. And he's talking about purchasing the backfield so that we can put cooties there. So when all of that happens, as all of that happens, we'd probably be able to have a residence of about five to seven monastics. And that would probably hold us in good stead until we raise a gazillion dollars to buy a piece of land and to start building a a proper forest monastery that then creates the, the ground and the space to have this new model be able to unfold. Yes, please. Um, I'm really curious about your decision to not disrobe and how you could say a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.